Hi, everyone, wherever you may be. It's my privilege to welcome you to the best thing that's ever happened to you today. It's called the Greenwich A Town For All Seasons show podcast. I'm your host, Jeffrey Bingham Mead, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut in the United States of America. Welcome to the November 12, 2021 show. It's my pleasure to have you with us today. Now, thanks to the miracles of 21st century modern technology, I am able to be with you from a secret location. It really does not matter where I am. What matters is that you have arrived on time for the best show ever on the internet that focuses on the history and culture of one of America's most exceptional communities, that being Greenwich, Connecticut. Whether you have been here for 381 seconds or 381 years since Greenwich was founded on July 18th, 1640, you are a part of our history. So, congratulations. Now, I know, I know, you think this is almost too good to be true. There's a chance that today's show just might change the course of your life in a new riveting path that will result in a sensational series of events and circumstances that will change the course of your history forever. Now, <clears throat> I, I do not know about you, but I am driven to explore uh, this town anywhere I go by an insatiable sense of curiosity. That impulse to strike out for new destinations or re reconnect with places I've known before can be a rather mind-boggling experience. Greenwich, Connecticut, the gateway to New England, is a treasure trove of historical textures not often found elsewhere. I hope that while the weather is still warm enough that you will explore this home that we hold near and dear on foot. I actually do that almost daily. It's a family fantastic experience if you're able to do so please get out and enjoy the fresh air and and uh, and and enjoy it before the uh, for the uh, before the winter comes greenwich's villages and hamlets such as byram coscob glenville banksville old greenwich riverside round hill chickahominy and so many more they will delight you in their own unique ways so let's without any further ado let's get on with the show shall we away we go Coming up on today's show. All right, I'm going to take you back in time to the year 1921, that was 100 years ago, when the people of Greenwich paused to commemorate Armistice Day. Now, believe it or not, the first Veterans Day was not held until year 1954. You're going to learn about how the people of Greenwich observed both Armistice Day 100 years ago and Veterans Day. Have you heard of the Round Hill store? Well, I certainly have. I grew up in the Round Hill area. The store is said to be the oldest continuously operated general store in all of America. It's not only a place to shop, but a true destination, one that, that for generations has retained an intangible charm on Round Hill Road and in the hearts of those of us who grew up with it. You're going to hear about how burglars broke into the store in 1895. Now, on last week's show, you heard me talk about news from the year 1931 that an attempt was made to rename Lake Avenue uh, Horseneck Road. Um, I did a little bit of more research about this, and I found out that a newspaper in Waterbury, that's over in the um, uh, other part of Connecticut, um, disagreed with 
Frederick, Judge Frederick Hubbard's stance, and they supported that. Uh, that was articulated by uh, Julian Curtis. He was in favor of the change. And so I'm going to share that with you. I think that you'll find it rather interesting. Headlines proclaimed their marriage a farce, and no doubt tongues wagged when Mrs. John Piagalou, better known as Hollywood screen star Constance Talmadge, separated just a year after being married by a Justice of the Peace here in Greenwich. Yes, I'm going to have the details. <laughs> it's autumn in Greenwich, and uh, everywhere uh, I, I go anyway, chrysanthemums are everywhere. Um, one of Greenwich's greatest states uh, was Millbank. Um, it was located across the street from uh, where the Second Congregational Church is. Of course, you've heard of Millbank Avenue if you um, are in Greenwich, no doubt. I'll take you back in time to the year 1893 when Millbank's estate greenhouses were thrown open uh, to the public for a first-of-its-kind chrysanthemum show. Uh, I think you'll find it very interesting. As we celebrate the 125th anniversary of the founding of the Greenwich Police Department, I'll share with you on today's historical police blotter a story from the Porchester New York Journal. It was dated 1906 of the arrest of a man by the name of John Bell. According to the story, he built the Indian Harbor Yacht Club at the end of Steamboat Road here in Greenwich. A complaint to the police uh, leading to Mr. Bell's arrest came from a man who uh, you may have heard of. His name was Percy Rockefeller. He was the son of William Rockefeller, so stay tuned for details about that. Constructed in 1916, the Priory is a noted great estate in Greenwich, Connecticut's history. It is one of a number of exclusive mansions on Field Point Circle. Sold in the summer of 2020 during the global pandemic, um, it was hoped uh, that this recognized historic landmark would continue to be admired from the waters of uh, Greenwich Harbor um, uh, and spared the uh, the wrecking ball. Unfortunately, that is not um, going to be the case, according to one of my sources. So I'm going to uh, share with you a little bit of history um, about this truly iconic uh, great estate uh, in Greenwich. I'll have news of happenings, public events, and more as today's show unfolds. So my friends, strap yourselves in and stick around. The best is yet to come. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. Support is made possible by an award winner of the Landscape Architecture Foundation, Greenwich-based Peter F. Alexander, Landscape Architect of Site Design Associates believes that landscape design has the capacity to transform perceptions and ultimately inaugurate a deeper respect for the natural environment. Since 1979, Peter F. Alexander has been tireless in his commitment to excellence in project design, management, implementation, and personal service. Building upon a cornerstone of experience and trust, he believes that each landscaped project design expands the interpretation of design, craftsmanship, and sustainability. Peter F. Alexander is the founder of the Soundshore Environmental Information Institute. His notable projects include the Olympics Training Center at Lake Placid, New York, the Master Plan of the Calf Island Conservancy in Greenwich, Connecticut, numerous residential projects, and much more. Proudly collaborative in his approach, Peter F. Alexander's creations of immersive experiential landscape spaces cultivates 
a sense of community and connections that are second to none. Learn more about Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect at sitedesignassociates.com. Again, that's sitedesignassociates.com. You can also call 203-869-8632. Again, that's 203-869-8632. By all means, when you contact Peter F. Alexander, please be sure to mention that you heard about him through the Greenwich A Town for All Seasons show podcast with Jeffrey Bingham Mead. Thank you. We also welcome Long Island Sound Institute. The Long Island Sound Institute understands that a bright future relies on brilliant ideas and methods. The Institute aims to use modern planning and implementing new technology to conserve Long Island Sound. Looking forward to its stewardship in the area. To learn more about LISI, go on the web to www.li. S-I-S-T-U-D-Y dot info or call 475-897-5444. Again, that's 475-897-5444. And we are welcoming a new major supporter to the show. The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, is in the process of organizing and implementing a virtual Ambassador Museum based in Greenwich, Connecticut. It seeks to be a tribute to ambassadors, their families, experiences, and the millions of lives that have been affected by them. The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, is looking for records, photographs, and videos of ambassadors and their families or people who have been associated with ambassadors in the past. Monetary donations are also welcome. Funding supports the Virtual Museum, which is receiving support from the University of Denver and the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies. Throughout the town of Greenwich's 20th century history, a number of ambassadors lived here, perhaps the most prominent being Ambassador Joseph Werner Reed. He grew up on historic Denbig Farm off Riversville Road in the backcountry and served as ambassador to Morocco and as chief of protocol of the United States, among other diplomatic assignments. On future shows, we're looking forward to featuring histories of those from Greenwich who served the nation in various ambassadorial roles. You can learn more at amusa.info. Again, that's amusa.info. You can call 203-347-4604. Again, that's 203-347-4604. Or you can write to Post Office Box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831. Again, that post office box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831. Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President at Jeffrey Matthews Financial Group, whose financial advisors are knowledgeable in the financial markets with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. Learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor's Greenwich office at 203-485-7595. That's 203-485-7595. All right, my friends, 
In November 20th, 1931, page 10 in the Greenwich News and Graphic, there is a follow-up story regarding one that I shared with you on my last show about the proposed renaming of Lake Avenue to Horseneck Road. This was something uh, that was uh, vehemently opposed by Judge Frederick Hubbard, um, and it was uh, rather eagerly supported by uh, Julian Curtis. Uh, So uh, there was a subsequent story, and I'd like to share this with you. I actually find it rather amusing, and uh, hopefully you will too. Again, my source on this is the Greenwich News and Graphic, November 20th, 1931, page 10, and the headline, quote-unquote, and in all caps, Civil War in Greenwich. (laughs) All right, so without um, any uh, further disturbance or, or distraction, let's get on with it, shall we? Under the caption, Civil War in Greenwich, editor Stevenson of the Waterbury Republican, that was the name of the newspaper, withholds sympathy from Judge Hubbard in his opposition to Horseneck as a proper name for Lake Avenue and comes out flat-footed for the horse and in support of Julian Curtis, who advocates the change. Listen to the Stevensonian argument. And I quote from the story. Our admiration for Greenwich... Good Connecticut town on the New York border line grows. Virile virile citizens there have been making a battle in town meeting to get rid of the effete designation Lake Avenue, now marking a residential highway, and rename it, quote, Horseneck Road, unquote. Horseneck, that's in, uh, uh, with exclamation point. (laughs) Now, there's a name worthy of a Connecticut town. It's a name of strength. It's a name of character. It has individuality. Quote, Lake Avenue, unquote, suggests an immaculately paved Broadway over which glittering automobiles driven by liveried chauffeurs quietly glide. Quote, Lake, unquote, is a commonplace. Horseneck, quote, unquote, conjures up a picture of a good steed of the old days pulling a wagon over a winding dirt road between stone walls shaded by elms and maples. The story continues. It is true that the younger generation will not know what is meant by horseneck, having seen nothing but gasoline-propelled vehicles. All the more reason to hold in memory, even by a highway designation, Dobbin, who so faithfully served our fathers... We are surprised that Judge Frederick A. Hubbard should have been found leading the assault upon this quote-unquote horseneck title. We understand in derision. He even pronounced it horseneck. (laughs) Well, that's my rendition of it anyway, continuing with the story. And with a vigor that rallied to his support in the town meeting enough citizens to give a vote that supported his opposition. They must have been younger people of the softer automobile era who could thus be made to shudder at the mere mention of a horse's neck. Judge Hubbard himself must remember the days of horses were it not for the report of the vigor with which he orated in denunciation of the change, swaying with his thundering attack, his admiring fellow townsmen, we would be suspicious that he too had softened in these latter years under the influence of a soft rolling rubber, casing springs, and rich upholstery. (laughs) Judge 
Julian W. Curtis, born in Fairfield in the days when the presiding doctor raced to the ceremony in a gig, has a proper respect for horses. He was found in the ranks battling for horseneck, quote-unquote. In the cavalry charge, so to speak, he did not succeed this time in holding up against the roaring attack of Judge Hubbard. Likely other engagements are ahead. We hope that finally quote-unquote horseneck, will come forth triumphant. The horse has suffered enough defeats. Let Judge Hubbard confine his attacks to those who would mince the name of his town into the afternoon tea pronunciation, quote, Greenwich, quote-unquote. <laughs> horseneck is strong. Let strong men unite in adopting it. A century ago, Armistice Day was observed in Greenwich. My source on this is the Greenwich News and Graphic, dated November 18, 1921. It was on the first page. And the story goes as follows. Here we go. All right. Legion wreaths, honor rolls, business is practically suspended. The two-minute silent prayer was observed last Friday, Armistice Day, at 12 o'clock noon, when a fitting ceremony was carried out at the Post Office Plaza about the honor roll of Greenwich Post Number 29, American Legion. A delegation of about 35 Legion men, led by Commander Harold L. Wellstood and escorted by a color guard, marched from the state armory at 10 minutes before the hour and stood at attention on the west side of the triangle in front of the post office. Sergeant Charles Merritt, was in command of the post members. The American flag was carried by John McKay and the Legion banner by John McKinley. Ray H. Harrington and John Kidney also served in the capacity of color guard. All of these veterans and several others were in full uniform, the balance of the Legion being in citizens' clothes. Several Boy Scouts in uniforms were stationed in a row just back of the Legion members. Just before the clock struck the noon hour, Commander Wells struck the noon hour. Commander Wellstoods placed a memorial wreath mounted on a pedestal in front of the honor roll, and as he walked across the triangle bearing the wreath, all veterans' hats were raised in memory of the deceased veterans. As the fire alarm horn sounded, once at twelve o'clock, all hats were removed and until the signal was blown a second time two minutes later, all stood in silence, with heads bowed. Burglar Perros sounded taps. The ceremonies concluded. The color guard marched back to the armory. The bronze statue of Raynell C. Bowling, soon to be unveiled, was covered with an American flag. The flag at the post office plaza and other flags in town were put at half-mast. All business was at a standstill during the two-minute silent prayer, and even trolley cars were stopped all along the West End line, as well as many automobiles and pedestrians stood silent during the two-minute period. Now, as a follow-up uh, to this, I have uh, another... Let's see if I can bring this up here from my... Um, no, that's not the one that I wanted. Bear with me here. I'm uh, just going through my my notes right now, and... <laughs> Stay with me, stay with me. Ah, oh, yes, here we go. Um, November 11, 1921. Uh, this is also from the Greenwich News and Graphic. Um, this is a proclamation uh, that was uh, issued by Governor Lake uh, for Armistice Day. Um, 
and uh, it was printed the um, the day before the uh, the holiday. It, it seems. Uh, the following proclamation making tomorrow a legal holiday in Connecticut has been issued by Governor Lake. Whereas the President of the United States being specially authorized, thereto by Congress, has officially proclaimed and declared Friday, November 11, 1921, a holiday as a mark of respect to the memory of those who gave their lives in the late World War, as typified by the unknown and unidentified American soldier who is to be buried in Arlington National Cemetery on that day, and has recommended that the solemn occasion and those ceremonies at Arlington be emphasized throughout the United States by the tolling of bells, and that beginning at 12 o'clock noon, all devout and patriotic citizens in the United States indulge in a period of silent thanks to God, thereby constituting said day a holiday in Connecticut. Now, therefore, I declare Armistice Day, November 11, 1921, a holiday, and I urge that on this day the people of Connecticut pause in their occupations to pay tribute and respect to those who sacrificed their lives in the service of their country with the spirit of thankfulness for an established peace and with feelings of gratitude and deep respect for those valiant lives to be commemorated on that day by all the people of the United States and by distinguished representatives of many other nations. And I recommend that on this day, all, all public and church bells throughout the state be tolled at 11.15 a.m. to 12 o'clock noon, and that from 12 o'clock noon to two minutes past that hour, all devout and patriotic citizens indulge in a period of silent thanks to God for these noble lives and of supplication for his divine mercy and for the spread of the brotherhood of God among all nations. You know, one thing that, uh, that should be pointed out is that this year, year 2021, marks the 100th anniversary of the Tomb of the Unknowns uh, at Arlington National Cemetery. It was referenced in the, um, in the article. If you do have a chance uh, and you are in the um, nation's capital or nearby in Arlington, I would urge you to stop by and to, to show your respects. Um, it was a part of our history. Uh, we weren't there uh, directly, of course, but nevertheless, um, it, we pay tribute to those, uh, even in the present day, who fight for our freedoms and who have fought nobly. Now, 1954 was the year that Armistice Day uh, became Veterans Day, um, and it was, of course, commemorated uh, in um, in Greenwich. I'd like to uh, to tell you uh, about that. Um, this is a story from November 10, 1954, in the Greenwich Time. So uh, let me go. Oh, here we are. All right. Veterans Day, formerly known as Armistice Day, will be observed locally with a brief 11 a.m. ceremony at the Post Office Plaza, conducted by the American Legion, post number 29. The fire siren will be sounded at 11 a.m. to let the townspeople know it is time to pause for the traditional two minutes of silence. It will be sounded again two minutes later. Private schools will hold classes as usual. The Greenwich Library and its branches will be open, but the Parrot Memorial Library in Old Greenwich will be closed. Town hall offices and the town court will be closed as will the Greenwich banks and their branches. The post office will put mail in the boxes and special delivery material will be delivered. The windows, however, will, not, will be closed and the postmen will not make their rounds. 
Um, this is from uh, the next day, November uh, 11th, uh, 1954. A small group of residents gathered at the post office plaza at 11 a.m. today to pay tribute to the men who died in battle for their country and to express their gratitude for the members of the armed forces currently standing guard to help prevent a, quote, hot war, unquote, from breaking out. Members of the Greenwich American Legion Post Number 29 sponsored the first Veterans Day observance, which replaces traditional Armistice Day, ceremony marking the end of the First World War. Second Selectman Frank R. Parker recalled the high hopes the world had at the end of the First World War when citizens believed United States troops had fought on foreign soil for the last time. Quote, that, in the words of Woodrow Wilson, we had made the world safe for democracy, unquote, he said. The world, however, has changed drastically since that time, and in succeeding years, armed forces of the United States have been engaged in active warfare for a total of six years and four months, he pointed out. During that time, quote, the most devastating weapons have been invented, he said. So it is suitable and proper that November 11 should now be designated Veterans Day, Mr. Parker continued. It is a day in which we honor those who have borne arms in the service of our country, and we pay silent tribute to those who have died in this service. Quote, I would like to emphasize an idea that has often been put forward, he said, quote, that the services now being performed by the men in all branches of the armed forces are worthy of our gratitude and respect, even though the horrors of a shooting war are not present. They are, he said, in carrying out their duties, quote, averting the hot war that looms as a threat on the horizon. Quote, let us this time, Mr. Parker stressed, also honor these men as well as the veterans who have fought in active warfare. They are the men who are the present guardians of our country, our liberty, and our houses as you were in the past. Mr. Parker was introduced by Frank Millar, past commander of the Legion Post. The ceremony was preceded by two minutes of silence. Members of the Legion marched along flag-draped Greenwich Avenue from their home to the plaza before the ceremony. Present today for her 35th consecutive year was Miss Bertha Bowles, who attended the first Armistice Day ceremony in 1919. Ms. Bowles, a former school teacher, and Ms. Nellie Kaminsky, a public health nurse, unveiled the soldier's monument on the plaza. Their marriage was a farce, screamed the headline in the Greenwich News and Graphic on November 25th, 1921, <laughs> almost 100 years ago. Constance Talmadge, quote, married here, unquote, got sick of it. That's literally a quote from the story. <laughs> All right. Here we go. Mrs. John Piagalou, better known in movies as Constance Talmadge, and her husband have separated. About a year ago, they were married in Greenwich by a justice of the peace. The husband is a wealthy tobacco importer. Miss Talmadge recently made this statement, quote, There is no other man or woman between us. We quietly arranged our parting. We just couldn't get along. My husband is not of the theater world. He could not understand my going away off to California to appear in the pictures. Perhaps he could not understand because he is a foreigner and I am an American. Besides, 
as I have discovered, our temperaments are entirely different. He wanted me to give up my movie career, but I cherished that career as I do life itself. He wanted me to give up, give it up, and merge my individuality with his. Of course, I refused. Unquote. Miss Talmadge is at the home of her sister Natalie. And the story continues, also known as Mrs. Buster Keaton. That's an actor that probably many of you know <laughs> in, uh, in Los Angeles, California. So, well, so there you are. So, yes, it, uh, it's an imperfect world, um, uh, whether it's in marriage or other things. But uh, this is from the Greenwich News and Graphic, November 25th, 1921. Um, uh, Constance Talmadge was a silent screen star and uh, uh, was among the, uh, the famous who uh, that got married uh, here in, um, in Greenwich. As many of you know, this year marks the 125th anniversary of the founding of the Greenwich Police Department. Uh, our congratulations uh, to, um, to everyone at, um, at uh, Greenwich Police Department, and uh, we look forward to much more news to come in the, uh, in the years ahead. Um, I, uh, we're going to put this under the category of, of the historical police blotter. Um, this was actually sent to me by a listener to this uh, show. Uh, the source on this is the Portchester Journal. Um, and um, I don't have an ex ex oh I do have an exact date on this. It's from March 29th, 1906, um, on uh, page five. Again, this is from the Portchester, New York Journal, um, and the headline reads: "Accused by Rockefeller, old man whose horses froze next to William's house arrested." And uh, the date apparently of the uh, of the story was uh, March 23rd of um, of that year, 1906. John Bell, a carpenter, 73 years old, of Portchester, who built the Indian Harbor Yacht Club and other public buildings in Greenwich, was arrested by Sheriff Rich today for cruelty to his horse on complaint by Percy Rockefeller, son of William Rockefeller. Bell turned an old horse out to pasture next to the Rockefeller house last fall. Tuesday morning, the horse was found lying in the snow, and the heat of its body had melted the snow. Somehow, uh, the, the, someone turned the horse over, and its wet side froze solid. Uh, Mr. Rockefeller telephoned to the officials, and the animal was killed to end its sufferings. Today, Bell went to see the horse and was arrested. May I let you in on a secret? In my not-so-humble opinion... Nothing beats the comfort and soothing qualities of a good, hot cup of coffee in a historical setting. The Coffee for Good Cafe is located in the stone 1858 Solomon Mead House at 48 Maple Avenue behind the Second Congregational Church of Greenwich. My friends, this is not your ordinary high-end retail coffee shop. Coffee for Good is a new, unique, nonprofit partnership with the Second Congregational Church and Abelis. It employs and trains people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Coffee for Good's authentically historical legendary ambiance will make you want to sip and stay for hours. Believe me, I'm there. <laughs> Enjoy exquisite indoor and outdoor dining. The service is attentive and friendly. And did I mention... Ready for this? That the parking is free? Hey, just saying. Oh, and let me throw this into this free Wi-Fi. 
Need a place to study, work, read, meet up with friends, or just relax? Make Coffee for Good your destination. It's certainly one of mine. 48 Maple Avenue in the 1858 Stone Solomon Mead House. Open 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Monday through Saturday, closed Sunday. Learn more at coffeeforgood.org. Again, that's coffeeforgood.org. Before I get on with today's show, I have an urgent appeal that I would like to pass along to uh, all of you. Um, This is from the Greenwich Historical Society, uh, and it goes as follows. Due to the unprecedented flooding caused by Hurricane Ida, the Greenwich Historical Society's museum galleries, library, and archives are closed until further notice. Now, we are thankful that the National Historic Landmark Bush Holly House our exhibit galleries, the Vanderbilt Education Center, and offices were not damaged. Other areas, including the library and archives, sustained significant water damage. Our staff members are safe and working on cleanup efforts to ensure the safety of our museum and archival collections and laying the groundwork for a timely remediation and reopening. At this time, we have made the difficult decision to postpone our upcoming exhibit, Life and Art, the Greenwich Paintings of John Henry Talkman, due to open October 6th, that would be tomorrow, to a date in the future. Please consider making a tax-deductible donation to help the Greenwich Historical Society's cleanup and restoration efforts. Thank you for all you do to support our work to preserve and interpret Greenwich history. Our work is only possible thanks to the support of our members. To learn more, please go to GreenwichHistory.org again. That's GreenwichHistory.org. And if you would like to speak to someone at the Greenwich Historical Society, please call 203-869-6899. Again, that's 203 869-6899. For over a century, the Bush Holly House and grounds of the Greenwich Historical Society have nurtured creativity, design, and artful living. Mark your calendar for November 18 for the next Create in the Barn workshop, the Thanksgiving Tablescape. This intimate hands-on workshop with cocktails and camaraderie fosters community connection. Presented with local realtor Karen McKenna, the Greenwich Historical Society is pleased to offer this special evening night out, hosted in its historic barn. Now, registration is required. 6.30 to 8 p.m. on November 18 at 47 Strickland Road in Cascob. You can learn more at GreenwichHistory.org or call 203-869-6899. Again, that's Greenwich History Org. Or call 203-869-6899. In November 1893, a beautiful chrysanthemum show was held at the Millbank Estate in Greenwich. There was a beautiful story uh, about this, and I'd like to, um, to share it with you. Um, the headline is, Beautiful Display of This Eastern Flower. Some idea of the exhibit, Lovers of Flowers Always Look Forward with pleasure to this time of the year, for it is the season of the chrysanthemum, the flower that does not bloom in the spring, but in the fall, the last blossoms of the year, and in some respects, the most beautiful, for it is seen in almost countless sizes and shapes and in many shades and colors. 
The extensive greenhouses at Millbank were thrown open to the public yesterday and are open today from 1 to 5 p.m. in aid of a charity. And there is to be seen a beautiful and extensive display of chrysanthemums. There are large and small flowers, single and double, in brightest colors, in delicate shades, in sunset rays, in fantastic shades, side by side, arrayed along the shelves. There are some specimens superior to any that were to be seen at the recent exhibit at the World's Fair. At Millbank, there are over a thousand plants, which include over 35 varieties, from the commonest kinds to the latest fancy. Among them is ivory, pure white, incurved, wabin, Japanese, of a pink color, broad petals, one of the most beautiful of recent introduction. Ada McVicar, a creamy white flower with broad reflex petals. Harry May, a large and deep flower, double, color deep, old, gold with occasional reddish veins. Mrs. Edie Adams, a large flower, pure white, the outer petals swirling. Mrs. Hicks, Mr. Hicks Arnold, producing a spherical flower, old gold color. Lillian B. Bird, white flower, with fine-cut petals. John Thorpe, a beautiful deep yellow, double flower. George W. Childs, deep, rich, velvety crimson. Jessica, the earliest white chrysanthemum in existence. Single flowers are 10 inches in diameter. Louis Bremer, a deep pink flower. Mrs. D, D, Dr. H. A. Mandeville, large flower, spherical with broad, incurved petals of a terracotta yellow. Robert Bottomley has a fine, large flower. W. A. Manda, the golden yellow, hairy chrysanthemum, said to be the best introduction from Japan made during the past year. These varieties are among the largest and the latest grown. As the chrysanthemum seems to be increasing in popularity every year, a word about this plant, which is not a native, not to be out of place. The flowers ordinarily known as chrysanthemums have had their origin from one or perhaps two small single flowered species, natives of Eastern Asia. Long before their introduction into Europe, these wild varieties had been improved in a marvelous manner by hundreds of years of cultivation by those painstaking gardeners, the Chinese and Japanese. Today, they are the most esteemed of all flowers in Japan, a chrysanthemum being one of the royal seals of the Mikado and the highest decoration in his gift being the order of the chrysanthemum. The first chrysanthemum plant was brought to Europe about the 17th century by a Dutch voyager, from one of the Dutch East Indian islands, but it was not until about 1820 that the flower came generally into cultivation, and then a limited number and of small flowered varieties. The first chrysanthemum show held in Europe was in Norwich, England, in 1829. In 1860, the first varieties of the Japanese type came to Europe. The first display in America was in Philadelphia in 18. 83 by the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society, and until the past five years or less, the enthusiasm or mania for the chrysanthemum has been mainly confined to a region extending from Boston to Washington. The popular interest and ready sale for plants 
of new and fine varieties have started horticulturalists to raid seedlings and to import new sorts, sorts from Japan. Until today, the list of named varieties in cultivation is upwards of 3,000. At each annual exhibition, it is noticeable that the flower is increasing in size, is becoming more double, is appearing in some new shade of color, and the question is, when will it end? It is thought that sometime there will be flowers the size of a cabbage and that the much-talked-of blue chrysanthemums will be a fact. Besides the exhibit of chrysanthemums at Millbank, there is also a fine display of palms, orchids, and tuberous begonias. The superintendent of the garden and hothouses is Robert Williamson. This beautiful display gives evidence of his skill in this direction. To lovers of flowers, this chrysanthemum show is well worth seeing, and from 1 until 5 o'clock this afternoon, the grounds at Millbank will be open to the public, and admission is 50 cents, the proceeds to be given to the Greenwich Library. Well, how about that? My source on this, by the way, is the Greenwich Graphic, uh, dated November 4th, 1893, on page 3. The Greenwich Historical Society is pleased to mark the debut of the John Henry Twachtman Catalogue Raisonné with an illustrated virtual talk by Lisa N. Peters, Ph.D., tracing John Henry Twachtman's road to Greenwich, where he lived with his family from 1890 to 1899 and created the Impressionist works for which he is best known. Dr. Peters will chart Twachtman's artistic career through focus on a few key works, from his early days in Cincinnati to European study and travel to New York City and finally to Greenwich, Connecticut. Following the lecture, Dr. Peters will be joined by Greenwich Historical Society Curator of Exhibitions and Collections, Maggie Dummick, for a discussion about Twachtman's continued legacy and the rich information available to researchers and art lovers in the John Henry Twachtman Catalogue Raisonné. This virtual event is being held in celebration of the public launch of the John Henry Twachtman Catalogue Raisonné, a collaboration between Dr. Peters and the Greenwich Historical Society. The John Henry Twachtman Catalogue Raisonné is a free digital resource offering detailed records of Twachtman's life, exhibitions, and other material, including correspondence and entries for every known artwork by the artist. It is available at www.jhtachtman.org. That's jhtwachtman.org. Lisa N. Peters, Ph.D., is an independent art historian and curator and the author of the John Henry Twachtman Catalogue Raisonné. She is also the curator of the upcoming exhibition of the Greenwich Historical Society Life and Art, the Greenwich Paintings of John Henry Twachtman, and the author of its accompanying catalog. Her previous publications on Twachtman include John Henry Twachtman, an American Impressionist, that was with the High Museum of Art in Atlanta. She has published many other articles and exhibition catalogs on topics in American art. Mark your calendar, my friends, for November 18, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Registration is required. Learn more and register on the web at GreenwichHistory.org. Again, that's GreenwichHistory.org. Or you can call 203-869-6899. Again, that's area code 
869-6899. Well, hello and welcome back. I'm Jeffrey Bingham Mead of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast. Once again, it's really, really great to have you with us uh, today. Now, um, before we start to close out today's show, I have a little favor to ask my audience. Uh, my friends Herbie and Missy Farquhar of Banksville Lawn Equipment um, asked me recently about a place up in the northeastern section of Greenwich or possibly over the town line in Stamford uh, called Piping Brook Farm. Now, I did find an advertisement for this place um, circa 1916. The ad uh, says that uh, it said, Horses boarded at Piping Brook Farm, Stamford, uh, and it lists Richard Aston Elliott as the owner. There is a phone number there. You won't recognize it uh, in terms of the phone numbers that we have today, so I'm not going to mention it. I do have the ad up uh, at the Greenwich Town for All Seasons.blogspot.com site. You can uh, find it uh, there. So, one of the things that I'm asking you is to please contact me if you have information about a place called Piping Brook Farm. It would have existed in maybe the late 19th early 20th centuries. Um, it is listed as sometimes being in Greenwich and sometimes listed as being in Stamford, so maybe it was on the town line. Uh, but we do know that it was in the Stanwich area of, um, of the town. So please contact me at GreenwichAtownForAllSeasons at gmail.com. Again, that's GreenwichAtownForAllSeasons at gmail.com. I appreciate your help. Thank you. The Priory is an historic 1916 mansion that is located on Field Point Circle in, uh, here in Greenwich. Uh, it was sold, I believe, last year in July 2020 for about $25 million. Um, it's quite a spectacular place. And um, I wanted to close out today's show with a, um, a little bit of um, history about this place. The reason why is because uh, it is with a great deal of um, sadness and heavy heart that I have to report uh, that it looks like the Priory is going to be demolished uh, by its, um, its new owner. It's rather uh, unfortunate. I understand that um, uh, steps were taken to um, uh, try to change the owner's mind. It did not uh, succeed. So uh, the demolition, as uh, one of my sources um, has told me, will probably be taking place sometime in the very, very uh, near future. Anyway, um, it is a very, it's touted as a very charming historic home. It's on uh, 130 Field Point Circle in uh, Greenwich. It is uh, on uh, two and uh, 2.4 acres of land. It's on the waterfront. Uh, in fact, if you were to go down to the Indian Harbor Yacht Club or just past that to the pier um, at the end of Steamboat Road and you turned toward the, uh, to the right um, and you were facing toward uh, Bell Haven, you would be able to uh, to see the um, uh, the house there. It's quite um, it's quite beautiful. Um, the uh, Field Point Circle Association uh, has uh, only twenty seven home sites, uh, and uh, it all it is touted as one of the most exclusive addresses uh, in um, America today. The Priory um, is a twelve thousand square foot home. It was designed uh, circa nineteen sixteen by the architectural firm of Cross and Cross, in the spirit of an English crunch countryside estate. Now, um, uh, as an ad that I found uh, describes it, through the ivy-covered front door awaits the 
paneled grand entry with its soaring three-story carved wooden staircase. The adjacent double living room is bookended by stately fireplaces and flooded with light thanks to the span of windows and French doors out to the terrace and the water beyond. Spectacular water views and a glimpse of Oyster Bay can be seen from the dining room, gourmet kitchen, and double island and breakfast room. There are eight bedrooms and nine bathrooms uh, throughout. The 2.4-acre estate includes a private beach uh, with mooring and swimming pool, a tennis court, and 75 feet of, uh, of waterfront. It had been uh, listed with, um, uh, with Sotheby's. Um, there is a... Um, uh, a great expose on the Priory in the book The Greatest States that was published a number of years ago by the uh, Junior League of Greenwich. Um, it starts on um, eight, uh, on uh, page 51, um, and it's quite something. Um, uh, if you go to the Greenwich Library, you can uh, take out a copy of, um, of The Greatest States book, um, and um, you will find a, a substantial amount of history and description of the house um, in there. Um, I wanted to uh, take you to a story about uh, the Priory that is uh, featured uh, in uh, mansionglobal.com. Um, and um, it's very interesting because one of the things that it mentions that it is true um, is that Charles Lindbergh uh, and his family were frequent visitors of uh, the Priory. That was when uh, Samuel Pryor Jr. was the, um, the owner. He had inherited the, um, uh, the house from his father, Samuel Fraser Pryor. Um, and so um, um, here, um, here it is. So um, again, uh, it's, um, it's a beautiful place. It's perched on a hillside, or hilltop rather, um, and as Mansion Global describes it, the property's rolling grounds unfold from the rear terrace down to the pool and water's edge. Um, and um, you can see, let's see, what do we have here? Oh, yes. Um, I, I I do not remember when uh, Samuel Fraser Pryor, um, uh, the first owner of the Priory, uh, owned the place. But um, I did visit the place when um, his son, um, uh, Samuel Pryor Jr., uh, was the owner of the place. And it was quite something. He was very uh, big about um, entertaining people uh, of uh, all walks of life. It was really quite something. Now, um, Mansion Global describes uh, this. The ivy-covered house was built for Sam Pryor, president of the Remington Arms Company, an American manufacturer of firearms and ammunition. His son, Sam Pryor Jr., stewarded the Pryor, uh, Priory through uh, the next a generation. Known for his hospitality and festive parties, the Sun frequently hosted presidents, dignitaries, New York City mayors, and even hundreds of his neighbors to enjoy the best view of the yacht clubs, that would be the Indian Harbor Yacht Clubs, Fourth of July fireworks displayed from uh, the sweeping lawn. Um, he was a pilot and vice president of Pan American World Airlines. Um, Sam Pryor Jr. was close friends with Charles Lindbergh and other aviators who frequently flew seaplanes from the private dock um, in the mid-20th century. Um, and um, it is said uh, that the current owners, well, now they, they just sold the place a year ago, um, had been in the house for about 20 years. They did an extensive amount of renovation and preservation work. So, for example, the brick and stucco house has a paneled uh, grand entry and soaring three-story carved wooden staircase uh, and, um, and, and so on.
architectural details include uh, wood floors, high ceilings, some of the hexagonal panels, tiger oak paneling, a two-level playroom, and a formal dining room with French doors and a fireplace. The second floor master suite features a bedroom overlooking Long Island Sound and a pool, a luxury bathroom, two dressing rooms, and a study sitting room. The kitchen has a double island and a breakfast room and, um, and all. Um, let's see. What else can we say about um, uh, some of the things around here? Well, of course, the house is five minutes from uh, town, uh, very, very close to the Metro North Railroad Station in Greenwich and I-95. Um, and um, as um, uh, Robin Kensel of... Um, uh, Compass described it. It's it's a neighborhood. We're talking about Field Point Circle that's hidden but surprisingly close to downtown Greenwich, which has lots of shops, fine restaurants, and so on and so forth. So um, it is with a great deal of sadness that I have to report that um, even though uh, efforts were made to uh, persuade the new owner from demolishing uh, the priory, it looks like uh, that it will be proceeding. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls everywhere, this has been the 12th of November 2021 Greenwich A Town for All Seasons show podcast. Thank you for listening. I'm Jeffrey Bingham Mead. I'm a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of Greenwich, Connecticut, one of America's premier communities. I am your host, and it's really been a pleasure having you with me today. You can learn more about the show at GreenwichAtownForAllSeasons.blogspot.com. You can contact me anytime at GreenwichAtownForAllSeasons at gmail.com. This podcast has been made possible through the power of 21st century modern technology by Peter F. Alexander of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, and Kevin M.J. O'Connor of the Jeffrey Matthews Financial Group. Thank you all very much for doing so much to make this show possible. My friends, tune in next week for more of Greenwich, Connecticut's fascinating history. Talk to you then. Bye-bye now.